Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you, Father, as always, for you have revealed amazing things to us. And you've written them down in plain words, Father, so that we can follow and understand them. And yet, in the same way, Father, you have hidden them from those in the world who are not listening. And Lord, I, I marvel at how easily you can communicate to your children and how equally easily you can veil these things so that when they are discovered, they're only discovered by your power, wisdom, and will. And Father, that just reminds us how much you value and protect your glory, that no one will find you apart from your will. No one will know anything about you apart from what you reveal. And even if you put it in the plain words that you have and give it to us in our lap, Father, still, it is outside the reach of anyone who is not moved by the Spirit to understand it. And so, Father, we ask tonight, as always, you move us in our hearts to understand things that perhaps in past days we have missed or never understood. And so, Lord, as we sit here and as we prepare to receive it and we do receive it, Father, let us go out from here afterward praising your name for having revealed things to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we to return tonight to where we left off, not just in the fact that we're moving to the next chapter, chapter 13, but actually even more specifically, we're gonna pick up right at the very end of chapter 12 where we left off last week to revisit something we left out on or we, we moved out on, and that was related to the mid-trib moment that we've been studying now for a while. So let's, let's go back first to mid-trib moment. And I'm going to start using a new graph tonight that's going to help you see a little bit better what we're learning throughout all the chapters of mid-trib. At the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation, the Lord is going to make a series of dramatic moves that prepares the earth for the next three and a half years, the last half of tribulation. And we've talked about some of this already, about how the the chapters of mid-trib begin in chapter uh, 10, which is sort of an introductory chapter to this section. And then from there... Uh, we have an, a kind of an exit chapter on the other end, uh, chapter 15 that takes us out of the mid-trib moment, and then between those two you have a series of chapters that talk about activity that goes on at the same time, all simultaneous activity of mid-trib. So far we've studied chapter 11, which is where the two witnesses were, and then we ch- last week of course studied chapter 12, and in chapter 12 we were looking at the remnant being protected in Petra while the, the enemy, Satan, was cast down and was persecuting. And at the very end of what we studied last week, I should add we have two more chapters to go, but we're doing those over the next several weeks. Meanwhile, at the very end of chapter 12 last week, we studied a verse that said after the enemy had tried to persecute those who were being put in Petra in protection and found that he could not do that, uh, at the end of chapter 12 we read this. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And as I explained last week, Satan, now being bound to the earth, unable to go back to heaven, is alerted that his time is short. That's what we learned last week. That he's about to see the judgment that he's known would be coming all along, and that realization sends him into a panic, and it enrages him against anyone who is aligned with God and against his purposes. And his first target in his attempt to destroy those who are against him on the earth, his first target was the believing Jew. And if you remember, we talked about the believing Jew and that they have, Jews in general have a uh, role for God and how 
Christ ultimately comes back. We'll study more of that later. But it is Satan's effort at attempting to destroy believing Jews on earth that gets him going after the woman, as it was, that fled into the desert, right? And that was the story we studied last week, and we saw how God wouldn't allow that to succeed. He protects the woman, so to speak. He protects Israel. He ushers them to this place called Batsara Petra in the desert, and he protects them there. And as a result, it says he's enraged. He can't do anything about it. And so he goes off, meaning he leaves this place where the believing Jewish remnant now is being protected by God. He leaves them. There's no point in staying there. And he goes after two groups, I said. And I highlighted those two groups. First, those who keep the commandments of God and those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And we're going to look at these two groups here for just a moment. Believing Jews, the ones that are in Petra, are the remnant of Israel. They are those within Israel who believe in Jesus as Messiah. They're still Jewish. They're not less Jewish because they happen to believe in Jesus. They're still of a Jewish descent. But as a believing Jew, they're part of something else that the Bible calls the remnant. Let me give you an example. In Isaiah chapter 37, verse 31, we're told that the surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is just one small section, but it's uh, indicative of what you can find all over the Old Testament. That the Lord has said there will always be a remnant, meaning a small group, a minority group within the larger community of Israel, the larger community of Jews on earth, there will always be within that group a smaller subset who believe, who uh, are saved, as we would say. And the rest are not, by definition. So it's been very rare in the history of Israel that all Jews are part of the remnant. In fact, I'm not sure if you can ever pin down an exact moment when that's true. But in any event, the remnant's always a minority. And the, my, the remnant of Israel, Paul tells us, has always been a minority. In Romans chapter 11, he says this, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Well, may it never be, for I too am an Israelite. Paul's saying, look, I'm part of the remnant. Obviously, the Jewish people have not been rejected by God because if that were true, he wouldn't be saving Jews like me. And he then goes on, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left. Now that's Elijah assuming he alone was the remnant. And he says, and they're seeking to kill me, speaking of Ahab and Jezebel. And then verse four, Paul says, but what was the divine response to Elijah? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God says, Elijah, you don't realize this, but at this exact moment, there are 7,000, not 6,999, not 7,001, but by God's sovereign will, exactly 7,000 Jews were believing in Israel in that exact moment. And Elijah didn't know about the other 6,999. And Romans 11.5, Paul says, in that same way then, meaning in the same way that it was true for Elijah, it's true in his day and always will be true, that there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So God has always made sure by his will that there is always someone in Israel who believes in the gospel. 
And today we would call them part of the church, right? That in Elijah's day, believing Jews were present. In Paul's day, believing Jews, himself included, were present. And today the remnant exists again and will always exist. There is inside the body of Christ today believing Jews who come to faith. And in the tribulation, it will be the same. There will be Jews who hear the gospel and believe in Jesus. These are Jews who come to faith after the rapture. That's why they're still on earth. But they become part of the body, or more generically, let's say they become a saint, a believer, in the time of tribulation. And the people that we've already studied in chapter 12 are those that get shuttled off into the desert and put into that place of protection because they are the remnant. And in the time of tribulation, God gives them this very special period of protection because their enemy is so great for that period of history and so intent on killing them during that period of history. And had he not given them this preserve out in the desert, then Satan potentially could have wiped them out. And if he had, he would have rendered God's promise of a remnant void. And obviously God's not going to allow his word to be voided by the enemy. So we have in the tribulation a believing remnant of Jews, and we now know what's happened to them. They're in a state of protection. But there are still two other groups that he can go and attack. We saw that then at the verse I gave you at the end of chapter 12. The first of those groups are those that chapter 12 ends by saying, who keep the commandments of God. And I told you those are, that's a reference to those who maintain a faith in the Mosaic law The commandment of God, the commandments of God, therefore being a reference to the keeping of the Mosaic commandments. And the the Jew who would keep to the Mosaic commandments is someone who continues to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, and through the keeping of the Mosaic law, they are being obedient to that God of Israel. However, they have not yet believed in Jesus as their Messiah. They are orthodox, we might say, or Uh, observant Jews, but they are not believing, completed, messianic, whatever other term you want to use, you know, saved Jews. They, They haven't reached that point yet, and so we put them in a different category. They are unbelieving, or you might say orthodox Jews, right? Why are they not in Petra, being protected like the rest? Because they're not part of the remnant. You have to believe to be part of the remnant. Uh, If they had believed, they'd be in Petra right now, all right? Because they are devout Jews, however, they are going to be opposed by Satan because as a devout Jew, they know who the true God is, though they do not know his son, which is a critical distinction, and therefore they will be persecuted and many of them murdered by Satan through human agents that are under Satan's control, all right? And then I tell you there's another group that's still available to Satan, And that was the second half of that sentence that ended chapter 12. Those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. I have had some that would suggest, well, aren't those one in the same group? Aren't we just talking about Christians, those who hold to the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus? Well, it's not typical, common or otherwise in the Bible for the Christian to be described as those who hold to the commandments of God who keep the commandments of God. Yes, Jesus has commandments that we are to keep, but the Bible always speaks of those as keeping the commandments of our Lord or keeping Jesus' commandments, not keeping the commandments of God. That may seem like a subtle distinction to you, but it is important because that is the distinction between keeping the Mosaic law and keeping the New Testament law that the believer is under. So this is a second group. 
And as I said last week, this group principally are the Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus after the rapture. So they're not gone with us because they didn't believe at the time of the rapture, but they come to faith in the tribulation. They're not Jewish, they're Gentile. And so they're in a similar situation. They are uh, going to be martyred, attacked and martyred by the Antichrist because he will oppose them just as much as he opposes anyone else who does not fall in line under him. Now, they are not going to go into Petra. And you would think maybe, well, that seems a bit unfair. Why isn't he protecting those believers? Well, because, simply put, there's no promise from God to preserve a remnant of Gentile believers. Uh, Moreover, the plan of God for Christ's return and for the defeat of Satan does not depend on Gentile believers being on earth, like it does depend on Jewish continuation on earth. And so it's simply not necessary for God's plan. Nevertheless, you will see a group of Gentiles living through to the end of the tribulation. Not all Gentile believers will be wiped out in the tribulation, but most will be. And I should add one other thought. Dying during the second half of tribulation, not a bad thing. Not a bad outcome. In fact, when we look at chapter 14 next week, you will see a clear statement in chapter 14 that says it is a good thing. All right? Meanwhile, let's move to the next stage of action. All right? So, by the way, I should add, you notice my pie is not complete, and everybody's sitting there. All the OCD people in the room are really nervous that I'm going to leave it that way. There is one more group that we talk about next week. All right, chapter 13, verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. We have reached the chapter of the beast, uh, such an iconic figure in this book. Chapter 13 opens with that beast here and some very familiar symbols. I'll give you a little drawing that might be helpful. I'm not sure how helpful, but there it is. The dragon with the beast coming out of the sea and so on. Now, there are a series of familiar symbols here, things you've heard before. There are some new ones as well. All of it tells a story. And with the way the symbols work, as you see symbols being reused, the idea here is not necessarily that the, the meaning of them is changing dramatically, but that there's a building story. New details are being added to what you already know. So we start with the obvious continuation of the dragon. We know what the dragon is. We just studied it. So this is Satan, confined to the earth, enraged, persecuting believers, Jews, etc. But as I said a moment ago, he does all of that persecution through an agency of human beings that he controls and directs. He's always worked this way, obviously. And I mean, the most obvious example would be Judas. I mean, he got inside of Judas to betray Christ. And he continues to work through human beings in tribulation. And at the midpoint of tribulation, his tactics with respect to how he uses humanity reach an all-new level. And that new level is brought about by his being cast down to earth now. He starts to do things that he's never done before, or at least not routinely. And the story of chapter 13 is the story of how Satan's methods change dramatically after he is cast down. And it centers on a familiar character. I say familiar not only because you may have heard of it already, but because of what we've already studied. This familiar character is called the Beast. He's already appeared in an earlier chapter, a couple of earlier chapters, 
of Revelation. You may remember back in Revelation chapter 11, just one brief statement that talked about the two witnesses being overcome by the beast. But that was all we heard, and I told you then we'd get back to him. Here we are. And there was also earlier references in chapter six of Revelation to this same character, although in chapter six he wasn't being called the beast. He was the rider on the horses that opened up the first four seal judgments. You remember back in chapter 11 with the two witnesses when we saw this beast attack and destroy those two witnesses and yet they had all this power and I, I raised the question then, how could anyone have killed the two witnesses? What, what could have led to that even happening? Well, the beast as we see him described here will also be able to understand why he had the power to kill those two witnesses as we get through this chapter. And we'll also be able to relate what he does here back to what we saw in chapter six. So in chapter six, when he was riding the the horses, he wasn't being called the beast because he had not yet risen to the level of prominence that he now achieves in this chapter at mid-tribulation. And as he comes into mid-tribulation, with what will now transpire, he rises to the level of world domination. And in this new, all-powerful role, he obtains this new identity called the beast. Now the vision starts with the dragon uh, standing on the shores of a sea and the beast rising out of the sea. Now we already said the dragon is Satan. So the suggestion here is that this beast that's rising up out of the sea is his rise to power being pictured in that and being made possible by Satan's power. Satan is there presiding over this rise out of the sea, almost as if Satan is conjuring the beast up out of the water. Now, what does it mean that you have a beast and water and all the rest? Well, we remember our rules of interpretation, right? Look for the meaning of the symbols here, and if it's not here in the book, and if it's not in this book elsewhere in the Bible. In this case, it's gonna be really easy to find the answer because you've already studied this. You should remember the section of scripture in which we already saw the interpretation of these symbols. A beast, water, horns, heads, Daniel 7, right? Let's go back to Daniel 7 for just a moment. We'll read just the first part of chapter 7, verse 1. It says here, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another, okay? So a beast coming up out of the sea is clearly defined for us in chapter seven of Daniel. What did it mean back in Daniel chapter seven? What were those beasts? Not hard to remember, is it? Gentile nations? Yep, you don't remember, okay. (laughs) So the term beast back in Daniel chapter seven described a world-dominating power that would play a part in the age of the Gentiles, the period of history that we learned in Daniel 2 and in Daniel 7. And in the fact that Daniel, that, that Revelation 13 has a beast coming out of the sea looking very much like the ones we studied in Daniel 7, that's our first clue to know that what we're studying in this chapter has to be understood in light of what we learned in Daniel 7. These are two closely tied chapters. That's what we're learning. So we're gonna consider what we learned in Daniel 7 to understand the symbols that we're learning here or seeing here in in chapter 12, all right? In verse one of Revelation 13, we're told that the uh, beast here coming out of the water has features 
that are very similar to the four different beasts that come out of the water in Daniel 7. Remember these? We had a lion, and then we had the bear, then we had the leopard, right? And then there was that fourth beast, which we'll get to later. And then you see in the description we got here in chapter 13, not only did it have parts of those four animals, it had the horns, which is what it relates to in, chapter, in the fourth beast. That's the feature from the fourth beast, the, the horns. And then on top of that, it has heads like lions and ten horns, seven heads. And then it had diadems, which is a word for a crown given to a royal ruler. And where were the crowns? Where were they being worn? On, on the, on, there were ten and ten. They were being worn on the, on the horns. So they're, they're sitting there on the top of the horns. And the seven heads had blasphemous names on them. Okay? Daniel 7 again, verse 3. And it says, And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth, between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up from among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Now you see the similarities, right? Not just in the animals, but in the fact that there's a mouth uttering great boasts, Uh, and the horns. There's all of the features now that seem to be coming back into the picture in Revelation 13. And we remember in Daniel 7 that when we studied this, each of those four beasts represented one of the world-dominating empires of this age. We'll just review them real quickly. You have the lion, which represented Babylon, the bear, Medo-Persia, the leopard, Greece, and that fourth beast being different from all the rest with those horns represented Rome, and then from Rome onward, a kind of disintegration of the Roman Empire into pieces and parts that would keep floating back and forth together and apart and just continue the domination of Israel and Jerusalem, all right? Now, going back to Revelation 13 for a moment, and let me just summarize that for you. The summary of it is that all of the age of the Gentiles, until Christ's second coming, is pictured by these four large empires moving through time, the last of them being uh, a fourth one unlike any other and not easily described like the first three, which is the period we studied. We went through all of this. You should remember it. We're now uh, looking at how it relates to chapter 13. And in the beast of chapter 13, you see elements of all four of these kingdoms, not just the fourth one, but all four of them. You have a lion part in there. You have a bear part in there. You have a leopard part in there and so on. So the suggestion is pretty obvious. This beast of Revelation 13 is the embodiment of the age of the Gentiles. If you could put one person as the poster child for the age of the Gentiles, this is the guy, okay? By that I mean he is the final and most powerful leader that the age of the Gentiles will ever know. And that's why he has the features of 
all of the beasts, including the fourth one, and he will also then be the one who ultimately fulfills the overall purpose of this age. The overall purpose of the age wasn't simply to put Israel under subjugation. That was the means. The end of that means is that ultimately Israel would be brought into the bond of the covenant and prepared to enter into their kingdom. This guy coming at the very end and having the most power is the one who ultimately brings fulfillment to that purpose. And so this beast gets all these little features as part of his description to make the point that this is the guy we've all been waiting for. This is the end of the age of the Gentiles. This is the climactic final leader. All right? He is the final world re- leader that Daniel also told us would end the age. If we go a little further in Daniel 7, again, this is review, It says, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and he will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So we see now the connection between Daniel 7 and what we see here in chapter 13. And from that connection, we can begin to form a story about what the symbols on this beast are telling us. First, we know at mid-trib, Satan is cast down. That was chapter 12. And at the beginning of chapter 13, we hear he will raise up a world ruler called the beast who will rise to a level of power in fulfillment of Daniel 7, this one who will speak out against the Most High, that he will arise after the first 10, subdue three of the 10, and now become the chief ruler of the earth. That's what we learned back in Daniel. This is the guy. And in some sense, This brings Daniel's prophecy full circle because if you remember back when we looked at Nebuchadnezzar and we studied this in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, I told you that Nebuchadnezzar had a very unique role among those early kingdoms. He was the one that had complete power over the whole earth. Remember we looked at that? Kind of odd that he had all that power and yet he didn't go to the whole earth and we thought that was an odd thing that God did. Speaking to him in both Daniel and in Jeremiah, that he had all the power, every animal, every bird of the sky was under his dominion, every inch of the planet was under the power of Nebuchadnezzar, we are told. Even though he didn't go everywhere and conquer it all, if he had wanted to, he could have. That's what God gave him. Why? Especially since he didn't go do it. Well, it was to set him up as a figure or a picture of where the age was actually gonna end. In a sense, Nebuchadnezzar, becomes a prefiguring of the Antichrist. Because when we come to the very end of this period of the age of the Gentiles, to this beast ruler, he will have full world power, and he does express it, and he does take control of it. So in effect, we come full circle, back to the beginning, in the sense that we have one ruler ruling the whole world. And that's why he's depicted with the features of the lion and the bear and the leopard, because he inherits and he succeeds all previous kingdoms. He takes over everything that they ever had and more. He embodies the age. And it's made possible, this rise to power is made possible by Satan's power. Back in verse two, look, it says that Satan gives his power, his throne, and authority to the beast. 
Now, giving the beast his throne and his authority, that's pretty obvious what that means. It means allowing this man to get into the position where he can then rule over everyone. But it still begs the question, how does he actually orchestrate that? Well, that's the phrase, giving his power. And when it says the dragon gives his power to the beast, that indicates to us there's something new happening here because the beast literally becomes as powerful as Satan. That's the sentence, and that doesn't happen. Although Satan indwelled Judas, Judas did not become as powerful as Satan. And the only way, if we can imagine one, in which the beast could become as powerful as Satan, have the power of Satan, is if he becomes one with Satan. And at this point, we're gonna leave that there and come back to that. Now, before we go further, you might wonder at these first two verses, uh, having gone through these first two verses, why haven't I talked about the horns and the heads and the crowns, right? We'd like to know what all that stuff means. We know what the pictures of the animals mean. We understand that it's us seeing him as a fulfillment of the leadership role of the final kingdom, yes, but what about all the other features? Well, they obviously have great similarity to the dragon, but if you notice closely, they're not exactly the same. In this case, we have 10 horns, 10 diadems on the 10 horns, seven heads, seven blasphemous names. If you go back to chapter 12 and look at the dragon, this is what you find when you compare that to the dragon. The dragon had 10 horns, the dragon had seven heads, but where were the crowns? He had seven crowns on seven heads. All right, that's a difference that draws our attention, right? The answer to the differences are given to us in chapter 17. This is one of those cases in which the interpretation of the symbology is in the same book, and yet, in an unusual pattern for scripture, it's ahead of us, not behind us. It's one of the few times I know in which that happens. So it tells us that in order to understand what's going on in the rest of this chapter, it's not essential yet that we appreciate all of these details. And so I'm gonna wait until we get to chapter 17 because that's where it is, all right? At the same time, though, it's a little challenging to go forward to the next verse without at least explaining one thing about these because the next verse depends a little on understanding uh, one of these features. Uh, If we go to the next verse, it says... I saw one of the heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. So it makes it tricky for me to explain this to you when the focus of it is one of these seven heads that we have not yet decoded, right? So uh, to make the study of this chapter just a little easier, I'm simply gonna tell you this. The slain head in this case represents the Antichrist himself. Now that might seem redundant because the heads are on the beast and the beast is the Antichrist. How can the heads be him, and, well, chapter 17. Meanwhile, take it for granted for now that when it says one of those heads has now been slain, that we're talking about the Antichrist himself having been slain. That is, somebody has killed the Antichrist at mid-trib, and that's a stunning event because it would seem to run counter to everything we've just been studying, right? How can the guy who ends the age die midway through the tribulation? How does he continue to rule for three and a half years like we just heard Daniel promising us if he's dead? Um, Remember during the first half of tribulation we heard that the Antichrist rises initially as a political leader? In the seal judgments we heard about him coming on board as a, a man with a bow but no arrows. And then later he comes to conquer and begins to conquer and so he, he gains military strength at some point. 
And we also learn from Daniel 7, I just read you, that he's not one of the original 10 world leaders. He is the 11th horn. He's the 11th one that comes up from amidst the 10. So he is not one of the world leaders at the outset of his rise to power. As the, anti- as the tribulation gets started, he's coming out of nowhere and starts to broker an arrangement that allows Israel to have sacrifice on the temple. Daniel 9 tells us that. And then he starts to engage in world politic and world military conquest and he just begins to grow in power and consolidate power through threats of war and actual war. That's what we learned in chapter six of Revelation. By mid-trib, he reaches a height of power and at that moment, he suffers a fatal head wound. Notice the language in verse three though. It says that his fatal wound would be healed. Now fatal by definition means you're dead. So the only way a fatal wound can be healed is if the body dies and then it returns to life after that. By definition, that's the only way you can interpret a statement that is otherwise oxymoronic. A fatal wound doesn't get healed. You have to come back from the dead. And in verse three, the Greek language supports that interpretation because the Greek words for as if slain, as if he had been slain, in Greek, that's hospazo, it means resurrected. So having been slain means resurrected. So I saw one of the heads resurrected as his fatal wound was healed. All right, so he's dead and then he's alive again. There are uh, another example of this, which we saw in an earlier chapter. In chapter five of Revelation, when Jesus was described in the throne room as a lamb standing as if slain, hotspasso again, it's the same word in Greek, or words, it literally means resurrected, the the resurrected lamb, all right? So here you find the same phrase meaning the same thing. At the midpoint of tribulation, yes, the Antichrist is killed, but he is resurrected. Now, we don't know exactly what kills the Antichrist, but I think we can make an educated guess based on Daniel. Daniel 7 told us that as the Antichrist rises to power at the mid-trib moment, he subdues three of the world leaders and then he becomes king of the world, the other seven falling in line underneath his power. There's a little intrigue in that, right? Why did he have to take three of them out? Why didn't he just say all 10 of them work for me? Well, the suggestion would be three of them didn't want to. And so perhaps The three uh, of the 10 who see him rise to power get a little worried about where this is going and don't want to see him take charge. They conspire to kill him and they succeed. They think, okay, we've done that. And then next thing they know, he's alive again. And now he decides he's going to return the favor. And so then he removes three kings. And now the other seven, after seeing all of that, decide that they'll fall in line. It makes sense, right? Not proof of anything, but it seems to make sense. The biggest question, of course, in all of this is, how did the Antichrist get resurrected? Obviously, that's a a supernatural power, and that's not something individuals do to themselves. God has the power to bring a dead body back to life, we know, but in this case, he's not the one doing that work based on what we're studying in this chapter. The Lord is allowing it, certainly, but it's not him doing it. Satan is the one doing it. God permits Satan to indwell the body of the Antichrist to bring that man back to life for the remainder of tribulation. And indwelling the Antichrist means he takes up residence in the man's body. And that's what verse two meant when it said he gives his power to the beast. That is, Satan literally puts himself 
and his power inside this man, bringing the man back to life through that having been resurrected. Now that beast is even more powerful than he ever was before. He's still a man in the physical sense, but with Satan's power inside him, he's much more than a man. And through this union, Satan now makes this man the object of the world's attention and worship. Notice how the world reacts to this stunning development. They worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? So the resurrection of the Antichrist at mid-trib, it leads the world to say, who could be like this beast? Who could even uh, wage war? That is, who could oppose him? And as a result, the world begins to worship the beast, as you might expect, and on notice also, and by the way, there's a little irony here, Uh, Jesus said that unless a man or woman should believe the word of God concerning him, they will not believe even if they should see a man rise from the dead, which is proven in the fact that after he did rise from the dead, it did not result in worldwide belief, right? Point being that true faith cannot come even by signs and wonders, but false faith comes by signs and wonders only. So the object of their faith being a false god, they can engender in their own heart false worship for a false god, and they will do so for false signs and wonders, but true faith is the product of God himself, and only God can produce it, and he, having the power to do that, only produces it, obviously, in those that he he brings the Holy Spirit to, and the gospel then influences their heart to believe. So Jesus was saying, if you don't believe in the word of God, you will not receive the gospel no matter how many things happen in your vision. But the opposite is true for the world. They can't believe without the word of God, but they can believe anything based on what Satan does for the sake of their eyes. So the world begins to worship the beast, and as a result, they're also worshiping the dragon. Do you notice that? How do they see the dragon? How would they even know who the dragon is? I mean, Satan is not a visible player on earth. Well, because they're worshiping the God behind the actor. They see the man resurrected, and just as you and I would, if we were to see Jesus resurrected, we're worshiping the father of the, of, the, of the son who is being resurrected. So Satan now being confined to the earth, this earth is now his domain, and he has taken up residence in the body of the Antichrist. And in that sense, Satan has assumed a physical form on earth in the form of the Antichrist. And so the Antichrist and this so-called God that gives him his power have become the objects of the world's devotion and worship. Paul told us this would happen. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, he says, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, And then he defines who this one is. He says, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. By all power here, we mean all power apart from God's power. All power that can exist apart from God's power. And that's a lot of power. The demonic realm, Satan particularly, has a lot of power. Just nothing compared to God's, but much more than we can imagine. And the one that Jesus will slay at his coming is the one who will have power according to the activity of Satan. And this is where you see that activity starting, if you will, Satan taking advantage of the Antichrist's death to bring about his resurrection. I actually think it goes a step further than that. I don't think that Satan just got lucky here and the Antichrist happened to die on his watch and he was able to, you know, turn that to his advantage. Every human being on earth that's not a believer is under Satan's control. So Satan controlling the 10 world leaders 
would have likely created the desire in three of them to attack and kill the Antichrist and then turn that around, resurrect the Antichrist and kill them in response. I mean, you need to see Satan as the uh, one orchestrating the whole of this, though, of course, at the top of this chain, you have God himself establishing what would happen and how it would go. But Satan, as a pawn, doesn't know it. He's working his own plan, thinking it's his own ideas, and he goes through this process to produce for himself the opportunity to be king of the world and God of the world at the same time. And this is the moment when the Antichrist gains that power. This is the moment at which the Antichrist moves from being a backward player, uh, a kind of emerging world leader, to a competing world leader, to the world leader. And it happens because Satan puts him in that place. Now you find the reason why this man is called the Antichrist. Uh, he's not just an Antichrist because he's against Christ. He's also the Antichrist because now he has the spirit of the Antichrist in him. Remember who the spirit of the Antichrist is according to John? It's Satan. And anyone who deny Christ is doing so on the basis of the spirit of the Antichrist. But even beyond that, he is also an Antichrist because he is a counterfeit Christ at this point. That is also confirmed by Paul. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians again, chapter two again, verse three, he says, let no one in any way deceive you for it, meaning the tribulation, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, and then he tells us more about this guy again. He says, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So Paul says the Antichrist, part of what he does is he claims to be God. And he takes a seat in that newly built Jewish temple claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah. That's the only reason you would sit there, by the way. He's not claiming to be Buddha. He's not claiming to be Muhammad. He doesn't sit in the seat of Jewish religious authority except to say, I'm the Jewish God. So he's claiming a certain God. And it makes sense, of course, because there is only one true God, so Satan knows who he's counterfeiting. And he knows who the false ones are not to bother counterfeiting. So he's counterfeiting the one that would otherwise be known as Messiah or Christ. And Daniel told us this would happen. Daniel eleven thirty six. Then the king, speaking of the Antichrist, will do as he pleases and will exalt and magnify himself above every god and speak monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women nor will he show regard for any other god for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. I'll give you one guess who that foreign God is that is giving him all that power. Right? We just learned who it is. So he will claim to be Messiah, not in the strict sense that he's trying to mimic the, the Messiah of the Bible, but so, so much as to simply replace any thought of any other Messiah with who he is, all right? In Daniel 9, we learned that his rise to power includes ending the sacrifice that's being done by the Jewish people in their temple. Remember, Daniel 9, when we hear about this man, it says that he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's Revelation 6, 
That's the Antichrist coming onto the scene and establishing his base of power by brokering an agreement that no one to that point had been able to do, which was to allow Israel to gain access again to their Temple Mount and sacrifice again. What a miracle that will seem, that somebody had the power to make that happen. And it will launch him onto the world scene and start his rise to power. And then it says, but in the middle of the week, all right, three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So he reneges on the deal. How does he put a stop to it? Well, we just found out. On the wing of abominations, one who uh, will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So in other words, he stops sacrifice and grain offering by putting his own rear end in the seat, the, the mercy seat, going into the Holy of Holies, declaring himself to be God, desecrating the temple, an abomination, it says, a wing of abomination. So once he steps in and does that, he's desecrated the temple. It, so, it stops being used by the Jews, and more than that, he starts persecuting the Jews and sends them away. So this is the mid-trib moment when he gains the power. And now we're learning that when that moment happens, it's not just a man doing it, it's Satan himself doing it. So he becomes God of the earth, taking his seat in the temple, as Paul said, displaying himself to be God, creating an abomination in the temple. This is also the same moment that Jesus was speaking about in Matthew 24 when he warned the Jews to flee to the mountains when they see this event happen. We studied this a couple weeks ago. Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee the mountains. Now there's more to this verse we're gonna come back to in a minute, but I just wanna tie this together. We're seeing all of these things line up now. At mid-trib, the temple gets desecrated by a man who claims to be God because now he has Satan indwelling him and Satan is determined to make earth his home because he has nowhere else to go. And in this power grab, he's gonna start persecuting anyone who can try to stop his plan knowing his time is short. And for those who are in Jerusalem at the time, get out of Dodge, get out of town, He's after you. In Isaiah 28, the prophet tells Israel, you know that agreement you walked into with the Antichrist at the start of tribulation is going to turn around and bite you later. Isaiah 28, 14, he says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. Who's death? Satan, right? We've made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge. We have concealed ourselves with deception. Your covenant with death will be canceled, and your pact with Sheol will not stand when the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you become its trampling place. All right, so he warns them, you can't make a deal with the devil and expect it to stand. So at mid-trib, the Antichrist murdered probably by the three kings. Satan resurrects the Antichrist body through the resurrection. He claims to be the real Christ. He subdues the three kings. He controls the other seven, gains a worldwide following, uh, claims to be God, sits in the temple, calls himself the one and only God, runs the Jews out of the temple, desolates it. Um, And now you see some of this fitting into what we studied in 11 and 12. He kills the two witnesses because now he has the power of Satan to do that. That's how he's able to conquer the two witnesses. God allows it, but the point is it's at that moment he finally has the power to do it. Um, And then in chapter 12, we looked at uh, his pursuit into the wilderness for the woman in the desert. We can imagine now that it was part of what he was doing in controlling the Antichrist, that he took an army or that he took some other kind of uh, means of going after them and tried to attack them and 
He couldn't no longer do it after they were in their fortress, and so he's turned away, okay? So, all of those details are further confirmed in what we see next in chapter 13. It says, there was given to him, the beast, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven, It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. So, In that opening section, verse five, we get that telltale indication we're at the mid-trib moment again. You see that? And then, in this case, it's expressed as 42 months. I'll give you one guess how long that is. Three and a half years. And as Daniel has already told us in what we read, once the Antichrist rises to power, he starts to speak these arrogant, blasphemous things for the whole of the 42 months. Paul told us he would do the same thing. And the effect is to just wear down, in other words, to denigrate God and anything associated with God and to put himself in, in its place, all right? And the effect of the resurrection of the Antichrist and his claims to be God are immediate and profound on the entire earth. The whole world now is set against anyone who would deny the truth of his claims. Remember at the end of chapter 12, we learned that Satan went off to make war with, I said, the unbelieving Jews and the Gentile Christians. Now you see how that war will be prosecuted. Satan will use the Antichrist as his agent to lead those attacks, but it doesn't require that the Antichrist do it all himself. He has the whole world on his side. Everyone thinks he's God. And as such, he directs them to hunt down and kill anyone who will not worship him as God. Now consider what the world thinks of him at this point. He's the guy that killed the two witnesses, and they likely associate all of the earlier judgments that have taken place with those guys for the reasons I gave you back in chapter 11. So there have been no new judgments on the earth during this time. God has sort of put a pause button on all of the destruction. So the world is calm, relatively speaking, for the first time in three and a half years. You've got a guy who looks like the God and the Savior they've been waiting for. He's killed the two guys who seem to be causing all the trouble. And He's now declaring, you know, Pax Romana in a new form, and he's saying, uh, at this point, it's either worship me or you're against me, and the world is so thrilled with this guy and what he's achieved for them in a short period of time, they're ready to do his bidding. They're ready, they're rapidly going out to kill anyone who would oppose him. And we're told in this section that the war that they wage against those who are against the Antichrist is successful, largely successful. Uh, because the Antichrist has been given authority over all the people of the earth. So what makes the second half of tribulation so terrible, apart from the very end, which we know will be the final judgments, but what about the rest of the three and a half years? Why are the, the three and a half years so bad if God himself is not pouring down you know, hail and brimstone all the time, fire and brimstone? Well, because Satan himself is doing it for him, but it's against only those who oppose him. So in the first half of tribulation, God appears to be sending all the destruction against the unbeliever. He sealed those who are his. And as I told you earlier, I believe Israel is largely preserved from these judgments, according to what he mentioned with the wine and the oil being preserved, a reference to Israel. 
So in the first half of tribulation, bad guys getting, you know, getting judgment, good guys not. Second half of tribulation, bad guys not getting judgment, not yet. Good guys under persecution. So it's a flip. And those who come to know Jesus, the, the text says, will not accept the Antichrist as their God for obvious reasons, right? And therefore they will not worship him for obvious reasons. And not worshiping the Antichrist will be hard to hide. And as a result, he will overcome the saints, he will make martyrs of believers who refuse to obey. The rest of the world will fall in line and worship the beast as their God. And if you notice in verse eight, it says everyone on the earth who was not recorded in the Lamb's book of life from the foundations of the earth will worship the beast. That is, those who are recorded in the Lamb's book, those the elect of God, those who are saved by grace, they will refuse to worship because they believe in Jesus and they know the difference. But consider what that verse is indicating. If someone begins to worship the beast at this point, they will never be saved. Look at the wording again. If they worship the beast, they cannot be saved because it says that all who dwell on the earth will worship him if they're not in the book of the Lamb. And so those in the book of the Lamb are the saved. So by definition, at this point, at mid-trib, we stop evangelism. There's no new faith, no new believers as far as the world goes, with one exception which we cover later. But for the most part, that's the rule. At this point, the whole world will worship him unless they're already in the Lamb's Book of Life, in which case that means they're going to believe, they're believing. So it's, it's suddenly now at mid-trib, this defining moment, a division of all humanity. It's not just the division of the seven years, it's the division of all humanity into two groups. And there's always only been two groups. It just becomes really clear now that there are only two groups. Because there's only one religion on the earth that you can choose, and if you don't choose it, you're killed. And what we just read in verse eight is, everyone will choose it, except those who have already chosen Jesus. So, from this point onward, everyone who worships the beast is unsavable, and those who refuse to worship the beast are largely martyred. There is no third option, because there's no hiding, there's no avoiding the fate. It's worship the beast and live, but be condemned in the end, or worship Jesus and die, but have eternal life. John sums up this truth in verse nine. He says, if anyone has a hearer to hear the truth that is, let him hear, let him believe. I believe that's a call to those who live in that period of history. As they pick up this book in the middle of tribulation and they read these words and they see the pattern of what they're reading fitting the pattern of what they're watching in their world, it'll be the final call to those on earth to understand, believe now or else. And we'll study this issue next week because chapter 14 is all about this issue. And then in verse 10, it says in a sobering statement, if a saint is destined to be taken into captivity, that's where he or she will go. This is a strong statement of God's sovereignty. That is, if God has appointed you to go into captivity, you're going into captivity. It's not going to be any other way. There's no resisting the power of the Antichrist. Uh, I don't know if you read the books on the Left Behind series, but it's a you know, fictionalized novel about these times, and I'm not saying it's, it's altogether correct or not, but one of the things that it did not do a good job of portraying was the sovereignty of God because it gave the impression that the, you know, there's this armed rebellion or whatever out there that can kind of resist in the shadows. Chapter 13, verse 10 says that's not true. There's not gonna be any rebel resistance. There's gonna be submission at every level. And so there'll be no resisting. 
This ruler is one that God has permitted to have absolute control for three and a half years, and nothing the saints will do will impede his rule. So John says, this then is the perseverance of the saints. And you can translate that, this is the patience. This is the endurance of the saints, which is to say, you need to read this and accept it. That's your perseverance. Your patience is to accept your lot that you have found yourself in the great tribulation. Been nice if you had believed before rapture, but here you are. You believed at least. That's the key. And now whatever comes next, comes next. And you cannot, you notice it says, if anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. You're not gonna go out fighting your way out of this. You're just gonna hasten your own death. That's not the way a saint responds to the work of God. Uh, We don't fight back with sword. So not in the sense of when God's appointed an outcome, you can't change it through that kind of mechanism. That's the point. So you will be a martyr when God chooses for you to be a martyr. Later in Revelation, as I said, we'll hear that it's a good thing when God chooses you to be the martyr in this period of history. All right, we've got a few more things and then we're done. Look at chapter 13. Uh, Let me just give you a quick recap then of what we just studied and then we'll move into the last bit here. Chapter 13 says that we have the Antichrist resurrected and then one more piece. We have one more character. Verse 11, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and had come to life. All right? This beast has, we're not going to put any pictures because it's very simple. He's pictured as a lamb and a dragon mixed together. Dragon, Satan. Not hard to picture. We understand that already. And the lamb is a very consistent picture in Scripture as well. It pictures Christ in his ministry as the dying prophet sent to be sacrificed as the Lamb of God, right? So we know this isn't Jesus, so how do we put these two together? Well, he has the mouth of a dragon, so that would suggest he speaks for for Satan. He's the mouthpiece of Satan. And he is in the form of a lamb, which might suggest he is like a prophet. That is, he is is a prophet that the Antichrist God, Satan, has raised up to be his spokesman. And you might commonly hear people refer to this guy as the second beast. Uh, this, I'm sorry, the second beast as the false prophet. If you've ever heard that term, the false prophet, it's not mentioned here yet, but it's the title given to the second beast. John says in verse 12, he will exercise or bear the authority of the Antichrist in the Antichrist's presence. That's a really interesting phrase. It means he can only do power, you know, supernatural things, when he's in the presence of the Antichrist. What you're learning here is that Satan raises up a second man, someone you have not heard of before, not in Daniel, not elsewhere in this book even. First time we hear about him is here. And he works hand in hand with the Antichrist to further the deception and prompt the world's worship of Satan. And he calls upon the world to worship the beast, that is to worship the Antichrist. And he has the power to reinforce that message by calling fire down from heaven, doing some very dramatic supernatural things. But he can only do those supernatural things when he's in the presence of the Antichrist. If the Antichrist goes off somewhere for a day, the false prophet has no power while he's gone. And that's such an interesting detail because it reminds you that Satan is not God. 
He's not omniscient nor omnipresent, which means he can only be in one place at one time. He's a created being. Satan is not everywhere at once. He can only be one place. And guess where that one place is for the remainder of tribulation? In the body of the Antichrist. So now he's bound to a physical object. That physical object leaves the room. Satan's left the room. And when Satan leaves the room, he doesn't know what's going on in the room. And when the false prophet back in the room is saying, I want to call fire down from heaven, his buddy Satan outside isn't paying attention and he isn't making the trick happen. So he can only do the magical wonders when he's in the presence of the Antichrist because he needs Satan to do it. It really shows you the boundary of what Satan has. A lot of power, but just not, at the, not omniscient, not omnipresent. So it's limited by time and space. So verse 14, we hear this false prophet commands that an image of the resurrected Antichrist be constructed. And this is a classic counterfeiting maneuver of the, of the enemy. Since the dawn of mankind, he has used icons and statues and relics and other physical forms of representing God as an attempt to trap mankind in idolatry. And many churches today, they display icons of a resurrected Christ or other false you know, figurines of other depictions of icons or whomever, and they do all of this in contrast to God's forbidding of these things in the Ten Commandments, first of all, and it's an indication of Satan's work at, at lessening our appreciation for who God really is by focusing our worship on the physical, on the creation, rather than on the creator. And he will do this again in the time of tribulation. The image he will cause everyone to worship will be an image of the Antichrist. And when the Antichrist himself is not present in the temple, they can come to the temple and see an image of him and worship that instead. And just to make sure everybody wants to worship this image, it's animated, as, it's, uh, as we learn next, in a way that's not typical of icons. Verse 15 and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. So the false prophet, by the power of Satan, can give life to this image. He, he can, says he has breath. I'm assuming that means uh, something can come out of his mouth. And he can kill those who do not worship the beast. So what would be responsible for that supernatural display? I think the simplest answer is demonic activity. That is, demons can animate things, and I think the demon must, a demon must be animating the image, giving it life. Remember, Satan, the father of lies, everything he does is a charade. Uh, all the false wonders and signs that trap people, they're always an imitation of something. In Daniel 12, we learn that this statue is the abomination of desolation that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24. Daniel 12:11 says, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, mid-trib, right, and the abomination of desolation is set up, that's when the image is added at mid-trib, there will be 1,290 days, that's three and a half years. All right? You notice it says that, the anti that there is an abomination set up, and that's the indication to know that this is something being put in the temple, which, as long as it sits there, it's desolating the temple. It's the abomination of desolation, and it stays there for three and a half years, minimum. All right. Finally, the false prophet enforces the command to worship the Christ by saying, if you don't, you die. 
And then he adds another requirement. You've got to take a mark that proves that you have worshipped and are worshipping the beast. And to incentivize you taking this mark, you're going to die if you don't. And if you somehow evade us killing you, you won't be able to find anyone who will sell or buy from you because they'll see you without the mark and that was not allowed. So it forces you underground without food, which is effectively going to kill you as well. Now, The mark is similar in a sense to what we saw in chapter seven. God sealed or marked 144,000 Jewish men as he sent them out into ministry. He gave them the seal of the living God, we were told. Now here again, Satan, he's never had an original thought in his entire existence. So he is the great counterfeiter. He just mimics everything God does. So he says, you give your people a mark, I'll give my people a mark. And he gives them this mark, which allows them to buy and sell, And if they don't take it, they're killed. Later in Revelation 20, we find out that the way they're killed is by beheading. And this further confirms that after mid-trib, there's there's no more hiding or equivocating. I'm agnostic. No, there's no more of that. There there is either you believe in the Antichrist or you're dead. Um, The 144,000 of chapter 7 were sealed with that living seal. Um, The mark here, though, is a number. The number of the name of the Antichrist. Now, let's explain what that means. Uh, Numbering a name is a uniquely Jewish way of turning uh, a Jewish word into a mathematical quantity. And it starts by assigning numeric values. They have 21 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and they assign each letter in their alphabet a numeric value. This is something that Jews have done for generations, okay? It's not new. They assign them this way. The first 10 are numbered that way, the next 10 are numbered that way, and then the final three are numbered that way, okay? And of course, if you take a name in, in Hebrew and you add up the numbers of each of the letters in that name, you arrive at a single value. For example, let's add up Yeshua Ah Mashiach, which is in English, Jesus the Messiah. That would be Jesus' full and proper name and title, Jesus the Messiah. And he... Anybody done the math? It's 749 or seven and seven times seven. Okay, in in the way the Jewish letters work. Uh, So once you have somebody's Jewish uh, Hebrew name, you can calculate the number of their name. Now keep in mind, this only works with Hebrew names. There's no other alphabet, there's no other uh, language that numbers their alphabet the way that the Jews do. I mean, we can give each one of our letters in our alphabet a number if we want to, but it's not a convention that we use. You couldn't tell me the number of your name in English. No one does that. But in Hebrew, it's commonly done. And it's interesting, by the way, if you go look at what David's name is in numbers or Solomon's name in numbers, it's actually there's interesting things there. Uh, meanwhile, once a name is translated into Hebrew and I know the name, I can then calculate its number. John says, when you do that for this man, the beast, and you calculate... The, the false prophet is telling everyone you have to get the mark of the Antichrist. And when you look at the mark of the Antichrist, it's the number of his name, it says, which adds up to 666. Now, the number six in the Bible is, the beast's name will be 666. The number of the six in the Bible is the number of fallen or sinful man. And in Hebrew, if you want to make something more, you double it. And if you want to say that something is the most, you triple it. So 666 would be the most sin or the most sinful man, which of course is exactly who this guy is because he's indwelled by no less than Satan. 
He is the most sinful man who's ever lived by that definition. So he is 666. Now, only the world that is alive at mid-tribulation will be able to perform this calculation and confirm the identity of the Antichrist because, statistically, many, many different Jewish names could add up to the number 666. Almost an infinite number of variations could arrive at that total. So until you know the name, you can't back into it. You can't reverse from the number to a name because it could be a many different names. Only after you have the name in Hebrew can you move to the number. Furthermore, because it has to be in Hebrew, I'll give you one guess which group of people on earth are going to be able to calculate this number. The Jews. While the Gentile world will largely not know this or be able to do it even if they found out it's possible. They don't know the, the Hebrew alphabet. And you'd have to know how to translate the Antichrist name into Hebrew in order to even start the process. So it is a coded message to the Jew of that period of history to not fall for the Antichrist to not be his, not, not to the believing Jew, they're in Petra, they're not worried about the Antichrist, they know he's a fraud. To the unbelieving Jew, God is holding them from following after him by giving them this in their scriptures in the hope that they would understand it. All right, let's finish with the last bit of information. I know it's a little late, but I wanted to get this out. Satan in all of this we just studied is perpetrating perhaps the greatest counterfeit in all of his history. And this is what he's doing. First, we have a dragon, Satan, acting as God of the world, the unseen power behind everything. He raises up a beast, the Antichrist, who then becomes the focus of the world's worship. He causes death of that man and a resurrection of that man, and in doing so, he convinces the world that he is the Messiah of the world. And then he raises up a second man to display supernatural wonders and create signs and otherwise and leads the world in worship of the Antichrist. Moreover, this false prophet also gives a mark to all those who worship that Antichrist. Do you see a pattern there? Let me compare it to something else you know well and you'll see it clearly if you don't already. You have the father who is the invisible God above all, and Christ, his son, who he put to death and then raised up after the third day, and now all worship is to be directed to the son. And then we have the Holy Spirit, whose role is to lead the world in worship of Jesus, and he marks believers by indwelling us. So Satan has created a false trinity with the express purpose of mirroring the real one because he doesn't have an original thought in his head. Everything he does is an imitation. Everything he does is a lie. And by definition, a lie is not original. A lie is the truth changed. A lie is a distortion of something that exists. So the Holy Spirit is being imitated by the false prophet, Christ imitated by the Antichrist, and the invisible father behind it all is being, who's orchestrating this is Satan himself. Satan has always wanted to be God, and he's constructing a little world for himself in which he has that for a time. So at mid-trib, back to this again, and we're done. The world now faces the prospect of choosing between the false trinity or the real one, and everyone has to make a choice one way or another. So we now have, at chapter 13, the, as, the Antichrist resurrected and the false prophet and the image set up, and of course the persecution that follows. One more mid-trib chapter before we get to the, the one that takes us out, and that last one, chapter 14, deals with the consequence of all of this activity for the believers on earth. What is this gonna start doing for those on earth? How does the world change in those last three and a half years? Um, 
we'll come back to that. Thank you for the extra time. Let's do a little Q&A after we pray. And if you need to leave, that's, of course, your choice. Heavenly Father, Father, we lift up the, the souls of those who will live during this time that we do not even know yet and per, perhaps are not born yet, who, when they come to faith, Father, and face these things, they'll be troubled in ways that none of us have ever known. And we pray for them. We pray, Father, for their comfort in advance of their trial. We pray, Father, for their wisdom to understand the days and the difficulties they are experiencing. We pray for the word to be present before them. We pray, Father, for there to be protection to the extent you would offer, Father, and that you would comfort those who have losses. And Father, we thank you dearly that we will not be among them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.